Hello against the Mob podcast listeners. My name is Ben Shapiro, and I have a quandary for you. I'm asking you to look past emotions, examine the evidence, and come up with an informed conclusion. As I've always said, facts don't care about feelings. I simply want you to consider two chronological correlations. One, the Little Mermaid is now black. Which doesn't really make any sense. I mean, sunlight can't penetrate to the seabed. If anything, she should be translucent, right? Two, sudden increase in underwater crime with the vandalization of the Nord Stream 2 pipelines. Coincidence? You tell me. Anyway, without any further ado, please enjoy the 69th episode of Against the Mob podcast. Hmm. 69th episode. Nice. Ladies and gentlemen, because today we have ourselves a regular old whodunit. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about in this episode about uh, exploring some geopolitics, uh, putting our conspiracy hats on again, as we love to do. Uh, of course, we're going to add a little bit of context before we get into all of the uh, finger pointing. But we're talking today about the catastrophe of the Nord Stream pipeline, how that's going to shape up the uh, future winter in, in Europe, uh, the geopolitics around it, the money that goes in and out of these and who the money exchange is and uh, ultimately, we're going to go ahead and decide today who destroyed the pipeline so that we can properly uh, execute those people and, and start the, our World War III already that we're so tense to get started on. Yes, here, here, to, to the gallows with them all. No, I'm actually really excited about this. Logan and I sit around week in and week out and tell ourselves how we're going to do better about our prep and how we're going to get ahead of our episodes. <laughs> and as always, week in and week out, we wait until literally the day that we record this and we sit down and cram an entire, you know, probably what should be a week's worth of research into like three hours of just. Well, Matt, hybrid. you play like you practice. And I've spent an entire lifetime of preparing for every test assignment essay that I've ever done by taking shit tons of Adderall and doing it the night before. That's that's actually very fair. That reminds me of that one meme where um, it's the you know the dude where he's sweating and has the two buttons to push, and and it goes on one of the buttons. It's uh, like don't uh, don't play with firearms while intoxicated, and then the other one's like practice how you fight. <laughs> <laughs> it's that chemical memory. I definitely uh, heard and maybe have proselytized that message myself in college a couple times of like. Well, if I'm high when I'm studying, I should probably be high when I take the test, right? Yeah, there's actually something to that. Um, I went over that in uh, one of my psychology classes. It's, uh, what is it, state-induced memory, where there is actually a little bit of uh, science to support it. I don't recommend it. Uh, was it Drunk Fest or Beer Fest, where they had to get <laughs> shit can to find the Beer Fest? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. That's it. So before we get going, guys, as always... 
want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Public Hangings for Pedophiles. PHFP is an organization dedicated to the fight against the terrible sins of human trafficking and pedophilia. They're also getting ready to make their Q3 donation. So if you've ever wanted to support a worthy cause, this is where and when you can do so. When you go to their store, you buy their merch, you support their organization, you help support this show, but most importantly, you help support survivors. Head over to ph-fp to see what they have and get your spooky season gear on. Um, I remember I bought a orange, uh, I bought an orange plate carrier last year around this time. But I know that there's something for um, everybody at that store. That I really wish that we could have. You know, it's like we missed the timeline. What we should have done is about four weeks ago hung all of these pedophiles and human traffickers in the streets and left them up because they would have made fantastic Halloween decorations. But we've missed our timeline this year. So everyone get your calendars ready for <laughs> next year to make sure that, that we that we nail the mark on it. So as all, you know, they're doing some dope work, hop in the trenches with them by supporting them and shopping at their store. ph-fp.com is where you can find them. Again, ph-fp.com, public hangings for pedophiles, turning awareness into action. We would also like to thank our newest partner in the fight against statism, First World Comic. Welcome to the First World, a practically post-apocalyptic, slightly mad magazine, Allison Deuce Wonderland version of a dark dystopian reality that is frequently similar to ours in a dimension not quite far enough away some shit went down sending us down a dark slightly moist satirical rabbit hole our reality takes the sitter route when the leader or mother obsessed colton murders the messiah monkey harambe go check out all of their comics at firstworldcomic.com pre-order your copy sign up for their patreon and stay up to date with all things first world again that is firstworldcomic.com first world comic sit down strain and try not to melt <laughs> and we're going to come at you guys with some more dates they still have some uh, release dates coming up uh we in our flurry of preparation uh matt goes you want to write a little read for these guys real quick and i was like yeah absolutely and then I sat there and I went, I didn't ask them any of their information. Uh, so we, we do have to go back and get through. You may get a little cut in the podcast here with the actual dates when they get an email back to me probably tomorrow morning. Uh, and we will correct that on our side. But guys, this is a very exciting project that uh, we're really pumped for. They do uh, not to give too many spoilers away, but he has one particular uh, character that is this chimpanzee merged with Joe Rogan with the third eye coming out and it, it, I mean, I didn't even need to read the comic strip. I was already laughing my ass off. It was a great rendition. Um, but they're, they're exactly what we've been talking about that in order to fight against the state propaganda, which is going to be constant, it has a vested interest in doubling down on itself. We have to create our own cultures away from the state that encourage a stateless living, or at least a, a, a less federally driven state centralized uh, top down type of system in order to do that, we need to start moving around in these other circles like comic books, like video games, like movies and, and TV shows and, and begin to influence the cultures so that people can actually see, oh, I don't have to just buy this red or blue message from these, these donkeys and these elephants that are spending all of your money across the world to uh, prop up proxy wars and essentially start World War III, which is what we're getting into today. 
Yep, that is a fantastic transition. Well done, sir. Well done. And so before we get into the kind of the who done it, because we're going to have a lot of fun with that, as always, we wanted to do like a little bit of historical context and actually add some value to this conversation instead of just like, oh, Russia did. Oh, the United States did. Of course, the CIA blew up a pipeline. You know, we wouldn't (laughs) actually set up how we got to this place, because as with everything in history and geopolitics, this issue is super complex and it has some really deep roots. And that's one thing that we really want to stress and hopefully open your eyes to is that this didn't just happen, you know, like Nord Stream 1 and 2 didn't pop out of nowhere. And what we are seeing right now is kind of this culmination of decades of geopolitics and energy and how the two have intersected and it's playing out, you know, right between uh, right before our eyes right now. Right. We have too much of a, a bad habit of essentially drawing in the lines of being like, you know, the story of 9-11 started on 9-11. Uh, I was just listening to Scott Horton the other day, who's my favorite person on on geopolitics around the world. <clears throat> and I encourage anybody look up anything by Scott Horton and just listen to that man speak and you'll be blown away. Uh, but he he kind of broke down that idea. We have this, this stupid worldview of like, you know, the entire story of why we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq happened on 9-11, we were attacked and we had to react, but it it overlooks what we now all understand the context of because we went through 20 years of fighting this war. We all started doing a little bit of research on the side, uh, or you at least listen to some people like Matthew and I who went and did that research for you. And you start going, wait, how much were we funding these people to fight the Soviets? How much weaponry did we pour into it? I thought we were fighting Al-Qaeda. Why were we supporting them in Syria when it came time to take down that government? All these weird turns and, and amalgamations, and then all the wrong people seem to come out in power at the end. But if you understand the context of the situation moving back, you can start to understand why it happened, why they had this reaction, and that it wasn't just some aggressive warfare out of the blue. Kind of the same thing with this Russia-Ukraine thing. We covered that in past episodes as well. Like To start the story with the invasion of Ukraine is to completely ignore the entire history going back to this post-Soviet Union-NATO pressures on this area and why Putin feels like he has his back into a corner at this point in time anyway. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's it's even deeper than a post-Soviet Union. This is like a, you know, a lot of the policies that are plaguing Germany and Europe right now actually start during the 1960s. And that's and that's what we wanted to talk about is to show that this is this is deep and this has been going on. This is a long time coming. And it makes you wonder sometimes about like how some of these people didn't see this coming, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there because it's very easy for us as modern people sitting in the chair of 2022 to look back at the policies that Germany was implementing in the late 1960s and said, well, of course this was going to happen, right? We, we have the, we have the, the benefit of hindsight and that is one of the great historical sins that we commit. Yeah, of course. So look back at the information we have now is always much easier to see the writing on the wall, of course. Um, I think it's also important to point out that it can be an alternative explanation, that it doesn't have to be, how did they not see this coming? It could be that, how did they not see this coming? Oh, wait, all the people that voted for us to go to war own stocks in weapon manufacturing companies and oil companies and have vested interest in those people being destroyed over there in those other countries. There is a lot of that, even in this story that we'll get into. So kind of one the big thing that really pushes this story like i know that it's kind of it's an arbitrary right wherever you start a story is very arbitrary everything is linked um to events in the past and there's no you just have to pick a place and so we're going to pick um essentially like the policy (laughs) of it was implemented by 
then German Chancellor Willy Brandt, and it was called Ostpolitik. And translated, that's just East politics in German. You know, that's where we get Realpolitik and all of these other types, all of these other German um, zeitgeist, how they how they play the, the game of geopolitics. But essentially, this started in 1969, but we'll get to the, there's also like a precursor to this, but this Ostpolitik really started comes to fruition in 1969 and Brandt sought to normalize relations between the East and the West by creating new economic and political links, particularly in the realm of energy. And this is something that we actually understand because we talk about this as advocates of the free market. We always talk about, well, you need to create economic ties because economic ties are can sometimes dissuade countries from actually um, going into hot wars. I know that that's, but that was one of the major foundations in um, pre-World War I uh, Europe. And there's, Barbara Tuckman has a great book called The Guns of August, which I, I strongly recommend if anybody's looking into like a, a comprehensive, like pre-World War I, it, it's essentially like the history of August of 1914, because there's an awful lot. And she writes a, a, a fantastic book. But that was one of the one of the prevailing um, thoughts of that time is that economic ties were too strong between all of these countries. It was too strong between France and Germany. It was too strong between Austria, Hungary, and Russia. It was like all of these countries were was believed to have Two, two interdependent economic ties to go to war. But as we saw then, and we might see now, that sometimes those economic ties don't actually have as much deterrent as we would like to think they do. And also to consider that this is an artificial market that we're talking about in all of these circumstances, because the government decides who you are allowed to trade for and with. So they act like, oh, well, they have all these economic ties with each other. But in many cases, the government only has economic ties to one other country for one particular resource, which creates a bottleneck. Or in other situations, they have energy packs with everybody in NATO. And the other guy has energy packs with everybody with the Russian side. And you end up getting these breaks down the party line because of that. So I, I wanted to point that out for a moment because we always tout that idea that when goods cross lines, troops do not. The problem with that being that when it is the state controlling it and you know, we look at this, even the way we read that just now, the state decided to help the economic ties with each other by coming across these lines and trading with each other. But what we're ignoring in that is why were goods, they were producing natural gases in Russia. They needed natural gases in Germany. Why weren't they already trading? Because the government embargoes that and it won't allow you. And then it comes out as like, hey, we decided we had this great idea. Why don't you guys start trading resources with each other? Wouldn't that be great if you guys were allowed to because we approved it as a government? And the whole underlying thing that's being ignored there is the only reason we couldn't before that is because of you guys the government who wouldn't allow us to because of your geopolitical chess game that you're playing and unfortunately that's just the reality of human history that we are that as as individuals we are the pawns of the state and that's what logan and i and others in this circle are advocating to try to change and or if anything, just wake people up to the fact that you shouldn't be a government pawn, because, I mean, that's a fantastic first step. Um, but unfortunately, that is the that is the history of humanity with the state is that we are pawns and that it is always state actors that get to decide these major life decisions. And unfortunately, the people suffer because as 
as you can see very clearly right now, and we covered this with our episode with Fort Cheap uh, a couple episodes back, it's going to be a hard winter for Europe. And the decisions that, you know, a few people made 60 years ago set the stage for you to be cold all winter. And that's and it's and it's unfair. It is. And it, it's some grade A bullshit, but it is the way that the world works, unfortunately. Yeah, we're taking that realistic view. I mean, that is, we are under the constraints of our overlords, and your overlords tell you who you are and aren't allowed to trade with. I would venture to say that despite how the majority of Russians might feel about Europe and, and want to not sell natural gas to them, I bet you there's a couple of energy companies that don't feel the same way as everybody else. That's kind of the beauty of that idea of diversity when it actually is a diversity of opinion and not just a diversity of skin color with the same opinion behind it, is that <laughs> your country can have one stance as a whole, as a, a majority, but other people could still trade goods and, and start to lessen the tension on those lines because there are still goods trading. So there is a vested interest in not having troops march over those lines. Mm-hmm. And there's... so. I actually found a book in the research for this. I ordered it. Um, I've pulled some quotes from it and it's called Red Gas, Russia and the Origins of, of sorry, Red Gas, Russia and the Origins of European Energy Dependent. I have to sneeze. <laughs> Matt's oh. going to probably mute his mic for that. <clears throat> oh, I guess not. Matt has a, a strong uh, elephant-esque Republican sneeze. It is a powerful, <laughs> manly just, sneeze. I'll just, I'll just edit that out. Um, <laughs> or not, because sometimes I forget. To, I'll, I'll be like, I'll, I say that so many times. I'll edit that out. When I start editing, it's like, oh, whatever. I don't care enough to listen to find <laughs> where that is. So we're just going to deal with it. You know, it's how sausages made guys deal with it. Um, I feel that. I, I definitely have trouble listening to my own voice. And probably the only thing worse than that is listening to your voice again. That's... <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna fight you on that actually. <laughs> I you have no pu- no pushback here. But again, the book is called Red Gas: Russia and the Origins of European Energy Dependence, and this relationship between Europe and Russia in terms of the gas export is pretty complicated. And I'm excited to read this book. Um, like I said, I did order it, so I'll share some insights later after I actually get my hands on it. But there's it's really interesting because when you start to break this down, you know, in the 1950s, there were only a couple of minor natural gas fields in Siberia that, that were known. But as they started to explore this area and the exploration progressed, they started finding more and more like proven natural gas reserves. And at that point, you know, I know that nothing is infinite, but in the 1950s, they looked at this as pretty much a near infinite supply of gas. Um, that was found in Siberia, and the 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 Soviet Union shifted their 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 relationship with natural gas as this, and essentially saw it as a commodity that could um, that had immense importance for the national economy because this is the Soviet right in in the context right. This is the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Things aren't all that great in a lot of regards, right? I mean, you're still dealing with four years of terrible war in in the majority of your um, Western portion of the country, right? There's still, you still have the, you know, the very realistic shortfalls that your communist economy is producing. And so they saw this as a way to really 
change their outlook. You know, it's like, holy shit, we have something that, you know, Europe might need and we can make a few bucks on this. And so they really shifted this push to try to get Russian gas into <coughs> Europe. That's got to feel nice to find that uh, a natural reserve of a, a fossil fuel like that and realize that like, oh, I guess we don't have to go murder a bunch of brown people in the Middle East to find all of this. This is great. <laughs> right. They, <laughs> Not uh, to say that it stopped them from murdering people in the Middle East for gas, but it at least alleviated the absolute need at the government level to do so. Yeah, well, it's like, well, the, the Soviets went to those other countries for other gas, but not natural <laughs> gas, because they had they had they had their own. And <laughs> as, as this starts to progress, what's um, Austria is essentially the opening of this European market. So it's going to be the first country to actually import, um, quote unquote, red gas. And unfortunately, it would become more and more dependent on the deliveries. And that's really solidified in, in June of 1968 where the Soviet-Austrian gas export contract was signed. So interestingly enough, though, because we're really focusing on you know Germany because they have a huge impact um, in all of this because it is the Nord Stream pipeline connecting Russia and Germany directly. What's interesting is that Germany wasn't an early target, though, for this exportation of gas into Europe. And and this is from the book, quote, when the Soviet Union in the mid-1960s started considering natural gas exports to Western Europe, there was one large West, there was one large West European country that remained conspicuously absent from the list of potential importers, the Federal Republic of Germany. Italy, France, and Austria were consistently identified as promising to be importers with Finland, Sweden, and Japan not far behind. West Germany, in contrast, was not mentioned in Mingasprom's export strategy, despite its proximity to the Eastern Bloc and its vast potential market. It is not difficult to understand why. Overall, political relations between Moscow and Bonn were deeply troubled, and as of 1966, neither of the two governments seemed seriously interested in improving them. <laughs> and I thought that when uh, they, they had the language of like conspicuously missing, I don't think it's even that crazy to realize that they were missing. I mean, this is a country that they had had some pretty interesting conflicts with over the last couple <laughs> decades. Uh, so it, it's one of those like uh, in the same issue that we're having today, like maybe there was something to those Germans who didn't want to start being dependent on Russian pipelines back in the day because they knew, hey, we kind of just fought a couple different wars against Russia in our recent history. Who's to say that they're not going to be adversarial to us in the future? And right now here we are. We're Germany's worried about fueling all of their homes for the entire winter. And the pipeline's no longer available. Yeah. And what's really interesting, too, is, though, that you have that adversarial relationship, you know, with Russia and with Russia and Germany having fought a very, very nasty war between each other 20 years in the, you know, 20 years in the past. It's also really interesting to see how quickly economic factors can push that deep into the past to where mm -hmm. a lot of people are saying like ah whatever that was that was 20 years ago hitler was a naughty boy um we're not nazis and you're not stalin so maybe it, it, it's it but it's crazy that that much deep hatred and animosity can be pushed aside in the span of a couple of decades because at the end of the day what were the soviets the soviets aren't looking at it saying oh we need we're going to spread communism through um through a pipeline they said we need money and these capitalist countries are willing to buy our our our, our natural gas 
and it's crazy though because at that point you really start to see some some flaws in the way that the communist ideology works because they still have to trade in in, in real currency <laughs> with capitalist countries so that they can have money to support their communist economy there's a really uh, i can't remember the full quote but there is essentially somebody high up in the soviet union was asked in the 80s about the the soviet economy and he says in short like a very bad paraphrase he goes we just need to know like the econ the russian economy is itself but we also need to have the concept of a dollar to understand how our economy works and how how we have to interact with the outside world so even in the midst of their attempt to create the glorious communist utopia they still have to be like oh well we actually still need some sort of baseline to understand like how <laughs> economics work yeah that's kind of one of the problems with that idea of of a communist utopia of like well, we'll just take all the resources and divide them up evenly and everybody will have it. Well, what happens if you don't have one of those resources within your boundary? Now there's a little bit of a hiccup because you have to either trade with somebody who doesn't have your same ideals or you have to go capture said resource in order to make sure your country continues. Uh, you know, that's one of those issues we have with communism is that even when I talk to my anarcho-communist buddies, uh, the point I constantly bring up is what happens though when you do come up against this issue is there any solution other than force? And there typically isn't. It's like, well, everybody needs to be communist. <laughs> right. No, and I mean, and that's the that's the big thing. I actually found out that there's a uh, there's like a, a full blown commune, like an hour from where I live. Um, we have a buddy from college called me and he's like, Hey, I was in your area and I just got off this like commune visiting my brother for a couple of days. And you know, he's like, It was wild and I don't recommend it. <laughs> 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 it wasn't utopia yet and the, but that's the you know and that's the fundamental difference though between our ideology and theirs is i'm perfectly i mean i i hate hippies but i'm more than content they can they can be hippies up there right they're not hurting me um they can go about their thing but when they want me to be a hippie on their commune you know by force that's that's the that's the, that's the end of the day that's that is the divide at the end of the day i'm happy to let them be a communist all day long, but please don't make me join your commune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the problem with a lot of those ideologies is that it does require 100% buy-in from everybody. And in order for that to happen, you got to you gotta remove or convert everybody. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there tends to be some ugly stuff that happens there. Uh, but hey, we're getting into ugly stuff. I guess it's next on our list is the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, so... It's actually, I mean, that's it, because what, what ends up happening is, you know, the context of the Czechoslovakia isn't stoked about being under the, the communist rule, and they essentially just try to break out of it. Stalin sends in, or this isn't Stalin, um, what, what year is this going on? I want to say it's Khrushchev that sends in tanks, but anyways, whoever's in charge of the Soviet Union sends in tanks into Czechoslovakia, and there's a full-blown, like, hot war in the city, but this also complicates kind of the the gas issue because that's what we're focusing on here and this is from the book as well quote in in the second phase however most western governments judged the boycotts and isolations were not the way forward most sought quite on the contrary to exploit the new prospects for cooperation that seemed to result from the kremlin's need to restore its legitimacy and its reputation on the international arena 
The result was a sustained and further intensified policy of detente. The issue of Soviet natural gas exports was reframed accordingly and was increasingly identified as a component of this policy by governments on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Moreover, the West European gas industry judged that the new geopolitical system would make the Soviets more flexible in negotiating the gas price than they had been back in 1966-1967 when seemingly insurmountable differences and price conceptions had made it impossible to reach agreements with countries such as Italy and France. Gas companies now showed a new enthusiasm for reinitiating negotiations. Once again, this idea that we can overcome our political differences through economic trade. And I think that's kind of cool at the end of the day. It, it is right. a real and I don't example. think it's not true. I think that they are on something with that concept. The issue is it's then carried out through the lens of state control. So you're allowed to trade with them through this one pipeline, or you're allowed to trade with these specific companies. And we're and then when shit hits the fan, everything gets shut down and nobody has gas anymore. Whereas what we would kind of uh, propose as free market capitalist ourselves is why not create a system where completely detached from your government, you're allowed to trade gasoline across state borders or, or natural gas or whatever the resource is. <clears throat> and then when it comes around to it and the country wants to embargo them, that kind of thing, you can go like, well, I don't have any problem with that guy that I'm selling this to. So it's kind of ridiculous that some oligarch, some aristocrat, aristocrat in Washington, D.C. or Moscow mm -hmm. got a, a crazy hair up his ass about something the other guy did. And now we're not allowed to make money anymore. We're not allowed to supply energy to places of need to, to people, people who had nothing to do with these conflicts. Right. And unfortunately, once again, the reality of the state system is that individuals are harmed by these grand geopolitical chess moves, you know, and that's right. it. Like, the yeah, if, you, if you're part, if the government's for us, by us, the government, you know, we're, we are the government. Well, then when the government does terrible, nightmarish things, you get to be part of that, too. Right. <laughs> we made the wrong choice. <laughs> it's amazing we how like told the CIA to destroy those pipelines. Right. It's amazing how how like quickly communist de uh, democratic societies become. And it's like the communist bugs bunny comes out real quick. And no, no, no. We made this we decision. This is this is all of us. You chose your elected officials and they made these choices. Therefore, we made this right. choice. They, informed by your opinion and desires, made the choice to embezzle that money and sell weapons to third parties outside of Ukraine. Absolutely. It was your choice. Yep. You decided. <laughs> That's it. And so another extension of this, it, it's called, uh, you know, pipeline politique. And this was a policy that was that was essentially aimed to incentivize the Soviet Union to move towards dialogue and trade with the West instead of conflict. I mean, just further furthering that idea that if we have this big political divide, then maybe through economic ties, we can start to try to lessen some of the severity of this. And it's, you know, it's really interesting, too, because we see a bunch of uh, we see this change throughout time. And that's what we're about to get to is that when this starts, it is the Soviet Union with West Germany. But this is also this this move is going to continue through some radically um, 
huge shakeups to the geopolitical chessboard. You know, the Soviet Union is going to collapse. Germany is going to be reunified. But then you still have now Russia and Germany talking about these same issues. And that's and that's kind of one of the more fascinating things about this is that this idea of energy dependence or the way that I'm sure the Germans saw it was energy interconnectedness. And maybe the Russians saw it as like one, just a way to keep the lights on because they are poor, but also too, like this is a way to extend some soft power that could be potentially hard power over the West. Yeah. It's not a bad position to be in. Oh, you say interdependence. Uh, or interconnectivity, I say you're buying all my natural gas. So I kind of like that situation, especially (laughs) when you start turning away your ties with any other importers or exporters of of gas into your country because you already have this pipeline. So it's coming from Russia. We're fine. We have have gas. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, and that's, that's part of that geopolitical game as well, that all of these cabals of spies and these assorted countries like to play. Economic warfare is no joke. Uh, oh. we, we love and it's in fact it's way more cost effective if you can completely destroy an area and just simply embargo them or maybe set up a blockade of their ports mm-hmm. it's a lot nicer than sacrificing troops and actual machinery to bend them to your will uh we've seen that i i don't know all of russia's as well as i know of america's incidents of doing so but just go through and look at what a, america has carried out in the name of freedom around the world in order to expand our uh, military presence around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman is probably one of the mm-hmm. best books about that very thing. And that's, I mean, that's a wild book. I watched the, I, watched, I think it's on, I think they've made a documentary of it. I saw it once upon a time, but I read the book, I want to say sometime right after college. It was a really good, it's a really good read. So for any of those who, anyone who's interested in all of that rabbit hole, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. So, but back to this idea, though, that um, this that that gas was going to essentially kind of be the savior, um, or at least the opening. It, it's something to to keep relations moving in a good way. So, hinting, uh, it was a resource to export. They weren't sending any polar bears out. Yeah, that's it. What is the glo- Gloystein, Henning Gloystein. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Anyways, the director of energy, climate and resources at the Eurasia Group said in in regards to this, um, this German Russian gas relationship. Again, the policy was to cooperate and hope that trade and prosperity would lead to peaceful relations. Until recently, this policy worked well, though now, of course, this policy is in shambles. And this <laughs> and this are this article was published, um, I want to say back in March of 2022, right after Russia invaded Ukraine and all of the sanctions started to happen because now we are starting. And that's what that's what this newest chapter in the Russian German gas relationship really comes to is that there's realities and there's consequences for policies that countries set, because like I said at the start of this, this isn't a new thing. This is the, just the newest chapter of, quote unquote, where we trust the enemy and we hope that economic ties are going to outweigh our geopolitical differences. Right. And again, just to point back to this idea of central planning that we like to hammer so much, even when the state is doing something positive, you could definitely argue that, yeah, creating economic ties between the West and Russia can only help to 
lessen the tide there in that area of, of warfare. The problem with that being when it is done from the governmental level, from a central planning position, that it only happens one way or maybe a dozen ways, but it is a very limited way of opening up this economic exchange between these countries. And then when shit hits the fan, everything gets shut down versus mm -hmm. having a more free form, voluntary way of trading goods where people would be trading with people and it would have nothing to do with what state your passport was from. Right. Or companies would trade with companies and, and company, then those yeah. companies would supply would supply people. Right. And that, and we kind of get well. I mean, it's this it's the weird pseudo state. Right. Because it's Gazprom, which is the Russian owned Entity. Right. Yeah, that's and definitely part of the problem is that a lot of these companies, uh, even in America, to a, a much larger extent than people realize, are tied to the government, but especially in these other countries where the government runs everything. Right. I mean, this is a country that just came out of communism, so they are at least pretending that the government doesn't control all the corporations anymore, uh, but it's not, not a, a zero sum of how many heads of CEOs of company have gone missing that have opposed Putin's agenda. Like those yeah. guys kind of go missing regularly. It's uh, dangerous to be near windows right now in Russia. If you're, <laughs> if, you, if you're opposed to Putin, it's uh, they're, they're just not safe. I recommend staying away from them. So to expand on this, this Ostpolitik, um, because it is kind of a vital, it is a vital part of this. And we wanted to do like a quick precursor back to, you know, this this German policy of East politics. And so, as we mentioned above, right, Willy Brandt, who was the chancellor of Germany at that time, sought to change their relationship between West Germany and the Soviet Union. And he believed to his core that commerce would be the vehicle of this correction. So his efforts culminated in a number of accords between the two nations in 1970. Among the first, among the first was one in which the two countries agreed to exchange West German wide diameter steel pipe. So we're trade. We're going to give you manufactured large pipe. In return, you will give us future deliveries of Soviet oil and natural gas. Later that year, the two countries also signed an agreement to renounce the use of force. Brandt assured his Western allies that this Ostpolitik would neither weaken West Germany's commitment to NATO nor make West Germany dependent on the Soviet Union. However, we all know that that's not going to be true. So the realities <laughs> of the Cold War really start to set in, and we see how gas and how energy depend, or the energy interdependence or depend, however you want to call it, how energy starts to intersect with geopolitics and create some rifts. So in 1981, the Soviet unions pressured, they were pressuring the Polish uh, communist government to crack down on a Polish trade union called Solidarity. That prompted the U.S. to impose economic sanctions against the Soviet Union. The German chancellor, though, at that time, was opposed to this confrontational approach to the Soviet Union and pushed ahead with a pipeline deal. And this, of course, you know, uh, that did not make America. We were very, very upset with our, our, our close ally because they chose gas over our protection money. And, <laughs> and but essentially that's what happened. They chose gas over its closest ally. And this start and that was that was kind of a cold, a cold moment in the um in the uh, in the German American Russian relationship, and then there was some you know the following chancellors saw more economic push with the Soviet Union, and then after the Russian collapse, because and this isn't actually like I can understand this line of thinking, as the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a big push 
to secure a relatively unstable newly formed nuclear state right like if we can if we can right like like this trade deal actually might help solidify some stability in this new country and the last thing that the world wanted is a bunch of you know like dis- dismay and anarchy in a nuclear armed state which i mean we've covered this in our U- in our ukraine episode where that was the big the budapest memorandum in ni- of 1994 that pushed to give to make ukraine and kazakhstan and all of these other Soviet satellite territories give all of their nukes back to Russia because the zeitgeist at that time, led by Madeleine Albright, of, uh, who was Secretary of State at the all time, at that time, thought that it was much easier to deal with one nuclear-armed Russia than four nuclear-armed states. Right. The irony of that being if they would have just left those nukes in Ukraine, then we wouldn't have to be sending $87 billion every six months over there. Yeah, I know. It is, <laughs> it is, it, it is, it is fascinating, dude. The, oh, oh, the consequences of our actions. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to point out too that, I mean, obviously from the American perspective, when Germany turns down our protection money and takes the gasoline, you're like, or the natural gas, you go, what, the, what are they thinking? Those are the bad guys. But you have to also think of this from everybody's perspective. I mean, the same way in a family unit, unit um, you know, I have all these ideas of uh, nonviolence and and uh, the non-aggression principle. Um, but if a homeless dude comes up and grabs my girlfriend's shoulder, I'm going to put that dude on the ground immediately. I'm not going to be thinking about passive actions in that moment because I want to protect my family first and foremost. Uh, and that goes on the same level from this, this governmental side that their first obligation is to make sure that there is heating and and able to run your gas stoves in the winter in in, Ru- in Germany. So his obligation is to make sure that his country set up well. So we have to be careful, as I guess is what I'm trying to say, and with these biases towards our own government, because other governments don't have American homogeny and empirical uh, desires at the forefront of their decision making, or at least they shouldn't. I think part of the problem with the world now today is that. A lot of countries have taken that protection money and do have that at the first forefront of their their uh, domestic policies. Right. And I, I do agree with you. I think, though, that what you're talking about comes second to the fact that it's all about power. Right. Power seeks yeah. more power and power's number one objective when it wakes up is to maintain and gain more power. So I, I do agree, though, that in the natural the natural progression of trying to secure that power is to make sure that people have gas in their stove to heat their homes, to make sure that the peasants are comfortable so they forget about being peasants and they go on with their day their day-to-day lives as being tax cattle. But so I do agree with you. I just think though it's not even, I don't think that it comes from a place of benevolence. I think it just it comes from the reality that that's what power does and power. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You need to make sure the peasants are comfortable if you want to stay in power. (laughs) No, that's a, that's a great point right there. You're definitely right on that, that uh, decision-making does tend to be made. And when I say that family unit, I'm probably giving them way too much credit and looking at their country as that family unit, because there's been plenty of uh, times we've seen politicians say things like, I don't want my kids to live in a racial jungle. Uh, which would imply pretty strongly that that particular politician who will remain unnamed would not feel like part of the country as part of his family. Uh, and you can continue to draw those circles in tighter and tighter. Um, we make that case all the time with corruption that like, yeah, sure, they might be in there because they did want to do what was best for America. And then some shady agent in a black suit and black sunglasses told them their family was going to die if they didn't vote this way on the bill. 
And it's like, well, I have a higher priority towards that family than I do my extended American family. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's it is it is the you know, at the end of the day, human behavior can be boiled down to pretty predictable metrics and self-preservation is an extremely powerful one. <laughs> it is, it is in fact the most powerful one. Life just wants to be life. And and it will and yeah. we will we will do whatever it takes for the most part. And that's like it takes a it takes an awful, an awfully important and brave and courageous soul to go against that self-preservation, knowing the outcome because it's the right thing to do. Right. They say the the great irony of life is that our one embedded instinct is to survive and our one guarantee is that we won't. <laughs> it is it's like it's the great dude that's like the great like comment it's like the it's the universe just the <laughs> ultimate you know the ultimate ultimate comedic punchline right there yeah, you know the universe loves irony baby it is we're steeped in it so back to irony let's talk about Nord Stream, right because that's the whole reason that you know this this episode came about is because Nord Stream one and two have erupted and we'll get to the details of that in a second but i wanted to focus real quick on just kind of like the complicated history of Nord Stream so in 2005 and that's where you know that's the interesting thing about this is that these stories are deep this like nord like a lot of people you know it's like where nord stream come from i don't know what was how did it come from uh, people in suits make phone calls and sign papers. That's how that's how it came about. But and that's what we're talking about. So in 2005, just 10 days before the Ger- the German election, uh, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Interestingly enough, they met like 47 times that, you know, while he was German chancellor. And he really did believe that Vladimir Putin was wow. a, a decent person and thought that maybe Russia now as a free state was going to change its evil communist ways. And, you know, put that into context of how many meetings that is, I mean, that's more times than the Clintons flew to Epstein's Island. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> way, to, way to slide that one in there. Happy to do so. Just keeping yeah. everybody out there. Just remember, you know, just keeping on the reminder so that Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. There's your reminder. You heard it here, folks, guys. Um, so in on September 8th, Actually, before I get into that, um, what's interesting is that the, the German chancellor, fearing that he's about to lose, really does some radical, he does some radical state shit. And he really starts to push to get this pipeline secured. And so on September 8, 2005, a joint declaration of intent was signed by Germany and Russia, creating a new natural gas pipeline running directly from Russia to Germany through the Baltic Sea. What's interesting is that I, I want to say, if I if I have my timeline um, correct, this is like five days before the election. You know, this, the election's <laughs> like right around the corner, and this guy is afraid that he is going to lose. And he is also the continuation of this Ostpolitik, right? Like he comes from the same line of thinking that Willy Brandt started in the late 1960s and through several German chancellors. Like he is the continuation of this. He doesn't just pop out of the blue and say, oh, I need to, we need to strengthen ties with Russia and we need to have this pipeline, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. This does not come in a vacuum. He is the continuation. And he's almost, I, I'm, if I had to guess, he's almost kind of like the, the real um, manifestation of what this Ostpolitik 
could be right instead of just like yeah sure we have good you know we're, we're getting good relationships with russia now that the soviet union has collapsed we are having good economic ties but instead like we can take this one step further and have a pipeline directly from russia to germany now of course every you know germany is stoked about this but also russia is stoked about this too because russia is now able to transport natural gas to germany and bypass all of the transport fees that they've been charged from ukraine poland belarus and all of the baltic nations right because which are not territories that are super in love with russia no and there you know and there's a lot of skepticism of russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And there's and it is it is just this super fascinating culmination of events, right? Because for the uninitiated, before this pipe, right, like these pipelines are above ground in a lot of places. And they're somewhere they're under, but they're but these are continental pipelines. And if you look at a map of it, they snake all over the place, right? A lot of them originate in Siberia, and then there's some in like Central Asia. But for the most part, this is gas that's coming from those Siberian reserves. And there's this snaking web of pipelines that run through Russia. There's, you know, the ones that are coming from Central Asia run through Turkey and they're coming through Ukraine. They're coming through Romania. They're going into Poland. They're running through, you know, um, the Balkans uh, for, for just like a geographical term. And they're all kind of culminating into this, uh, the edge of Western Europe, into Austria, into Germany. And then from there, those they start to split off to their respective uh, destinations further down the pipeline. But this was a way that you can now just go straight to it. One, it's a lot more, it's, it's probably a lot more efficient. And two, everyone's probably stoked because natural gas will be cheaper because you don't have to pay all of these countries those transport fees, right? You're getting people, you know, like there's less fingers in the pie. So therefore there's a little bit more pie for everybody at the end and perhaps pie can be cheaper. Right. Yeah. It's uh, uh, like you said, you don't want to pay taxes for everything you ship. We see that all the time. Uh, I think it's Ford Motor Company that does that in this country where we manufacture trucks in Mexico, uh, but we don't complete them in a separate factory in Mexico they supply doors for the trucks because it's cheaper to supply goods over state lines than it is finished products. So they, they kind of get around these taxes that way. It's, it's kind of the same idea that like, Hey man, this is going to be way more beneficial than we have a straight pipeline to it and makes perfectly good sense on that level. Like you said, we're, we're trying to create some sort of economic interconnectivity. Uh, the problem with that being that if shit hits the fan and you only have one person that you're dependent on for all of that it creates a couple issues along the way. It does. And those issues, and I mean, I know I've said interesting and fascinating a lot this episode, but it is this stuff. This stuff bugs me out when, when I, when I, when we look at it in this context, because what, uh, so the, that, that agreement is signed in 2005 and the pipeline is actually completed in 2011. So Angela Merkel, who does beat um, homeboy Schroeder in that in that election in 2005 does actually continue on with that policy. She sticks good to it. Um, but in 2011, the pipeline was launched in a uh, in a very lavish ceremony and present were the Russian president, Dmitry Medda. <laughs> I shouldn't have put this. I should. I just I think I Russian... actually watched a horrific clip of this. And when they do it, it's all three of them standing there turning uh, uh, 
a wheel to open the pipeline very yeah. slowly and awkwardly. That's that stupid political theater where they get up there and you know smash the champagne on yeah. the new shipping vessel and you're and, like and, oh and my cut God. the ribbon it's all and... all just for sound bites and clips for their next election. It's so gross and fake. <laughs> It is. It is. And so present was the Russian president, whose name I can't pronounce, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French Prime Minister Francois Fillon, uh, Dutch Prime Minister Marcrut, and the Europe, the EU Energy Commissioner Gunther Ottinger. Um, I can't believe you didn't want to take a shot at Dmitry Medvedev. <laughs> <laughs> well that's what you're here for dude you're my you're my you're my slavic pronouncer i had uh milosevic i've had I've had trouble with uh with the slavic names and i'm a forte um but you just have to drink more vodka and smoke more cigarettes and you'll get that natural throaty sound fair enough i do like vodka i'm not a, you know it's like the, it's uh it's the the russian the russian dilemma do i eat the potato now or do i wait and distill it into vodka <laughs> <laughs> uh i got a terrible i don't know why it popped in my head but you remember in college when you cut open a watermelon and stick liquor bottles in it do we, yeah ever clear i just thought about the the russian equivalent of that with a potato i'm just like slight just cutting a hole in a potato and emptying a bottle of vodka back into it ashes to ashes does does that's super, that's super meta <laughs> super meta oh lord <laughs> so, so back to back to nord stream so poland and ukraine voiced their opposition at the time stating that nord stream would cement a dangerous reliance on russian energy a little bit of foreboding right there but of course there's always there's always something else underneath it they had something to lose and they feared being cut out of the transit game which they were receiving a transport fee now what's really interesting is that this is coupled with the fukushima tsunami and that whole radioactive i want to say that this hmm. was that 2011 or 2012 i want to say they happened i know that i know oh. that these two happen relative in terms of geopolitics close together and when it was uh march 11th 2011 okay gotcha so um I, I didn't actually when was this ceremony done um I didn't sure we just put 2011 down, didn't I, we? Yeah, I didn't actually put. Um, let me see if I can find that real fast. I'm I'm curious. Well, Fukushima was March 11th, so let's just say March 12th and move on. Uh, yeah, well, I know that. So I know that. <laughs> I, that's what I thought. I thought that the two were closely related, and so Germany at this time started to scale back. That's when they said that they were going to decommission their nuclear power plants by 2022, which is what we are seeing today because now Germany is trying to, you know, revamp them and they're trying to, they're trying to get their coal power plants back on because there was this big commitment to reduce um, fossil fuels and turn to a cleaner, cheaper energy. And that came in the form of natural gas. And so all of this, that's, that, that's the most Interesting thing about this is that what we are seeing now really culminates 11 years ago. Decisions that were made 11 years ago because of freak accidents and bad geopolitical moves hey. and bad governance is now coming full steam ahead. It's like an av it's, it's not good to be on the ski mountain right now because the avalanche is here. <laughs> that, that was me putting my tinfoil hat on, if you couldn't tell. Have oh. you heard any of this talk about the... Uh newly russian deployed submarines that have atomic bombs that can create tsunamis no i have not 
Yeah, this has been one of the big freakouts as of late that they just deployed one of their submarines. Now, it's reported that they don't yet have the technology to actually create this tsunami, but it is something they expect to have by like 2026, 2027, something like that. Okay. But they're they're freaking out that these subs are getting mobilized right now with everything getting hot. I just uh, had to stick my tinfoil hat on for a second, knowing that this pipeline, I just looked up the dates. It was uh, the pipeline was opened in June. Okay. Of 2011. So this is fresh on there. I mean, this is fresh in everyone's memory. I mean, that that disaster was still going. That that was still a full blown disaster at that point. Um, right. So if you just opened up a national natural gas pipeline, and you didn't want nuclear energy to get in the way, and you can create nuclear atomic tsunami waves. Oh, dun, dun, are, dun. are you trying to say that Russia did that in? <laughs> Putin did that too. It's all Putin's fault. Okay, gotcha. We should be supporting Ukraine with all of the money that we could possibly make as tax cattle <laughs> and making sure we stop Putin. Perfect. I stand with Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. We came I around. To, I need to it took us a couple episodes. Yeah, but we there got it is. There. I need to. I'll, I'm, I'm going to put a blue flag in my, uh, a blue and yellow flag in my, uh, my profile picture now. Stand with Ukraine. <laughs> that way, that way, when I get, that way, when the war starts, um, and we start drafting all of the people that stand with Ukraine, I can go to the front and do my part. I do hope that's uh, how they draw those lines. Is that everybody with a profile picture of Ukraine should probably get drafted first? Nope, I would. Th- say. Absolutely, that's how I would do about it. You guys yeah, support you it? Supporting this. Cool. <laughs> Here you go. I was sitting on the sidelines bitching the whole time. You can go watch a hundred episodes about it. Yeah, right. Go listen back. Nope, that's not not my war. <laughs> that's not my bowl of rice, as they say. Um, and so, just to, just to kind of break down some of like the German dependence now, because we've, we've given you like a very brief synopsis of the, of the history of German and Russian oil. And that pipeline really solidified German dependence on Russian exports. And so in December of 2021, a Russian gas accounted for 32% of its gas supply. 12% came from the Netherlands pipeline, 20% from Norway, 11% from Czech, from the Czech Republic with the remaining 22% coming from domestic storage storage. Another source, though, that I found put the Russian, the the German reliance on Russian gas as high as 55%. But German energy dependence is much deeper than just natural gas. I was reading this report. It was, uh, it's in the show notes. um, And I don't know if I have that open anymore. It's a very comprehensive energy policy institute study, blah, blah, blah. And they were talking about that Germany, even though that now they're you know, trying to switch back uh, these nuclear plants, and that is a timely and costly um, process. They historically have gotten their enriched uranium from Russia and Kazakhstan. Thirty-four um, percent of Germany's oil comes from Russia, and fifty-three percent of its hard coal supplies as well. So, even though that the natural gas um, pipeline, it, like that stream, is shut off, right? It was already it was already off. But now mm-hmm. it is it is completely shut off. They but they still yeah they getting turned back on now. Nope, and they they were still receiving a significant portion of its energy from a historic adversary. And what's really interesting, I'm I'm going to play this audio. Um, Donald Trump, you know, it's like that man, the big the the big orange buffoon himself got this one right <laughs> and he warned germany about being reliant on russian oil and he was met with eye rolls and laughter by the german delegation um who was present at the un so let me let me find that um <laughs> that is funny while he's working on that that is one thing we commented on and i encourage you to actually watch the video as well that we'll link in the, the bottom of this episode also 
Uh, but yeah, it's just like you said, the German delegation, it pans to them and they're, they're eye rolling and throwing their hands up and giving shrugs like, How, look at this. What is he talking about? This buffoon up here. The great orange buffoon. I'm going to be so mad if there's an ad. Ugh, there's yeah, an ad. There of sure course. is. Of course. of course, there's an ad. Not the first time when we did it in show notes. But Reliance on a single foreign supplier can leave a nation vulnerable to extortion and intimidation. That is why we congratulate European states such as Poland for leading the construction of a Baltic pipeline so that nations are not dependent on Russia to meet their energy needs. Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. Peanut gallery rolling their eyes. Yep, that's it. They're just so they they look they it's like the the smug the smugness of those <laughs> Germans in that clip, and it's like yeah, well, you guys are going to be cold now. So yeah, man, it's going to be an interesting orange, winter for you. Fellas. The orange man got he got that one right. <laughs> And that's kind of the thing. we're not here to apostolatize for Donald Trump. It's this is a man who kind of seems to blurt out whoever got in his ear last and somebody <laughs> gave him a good message this day uh, and he happened to say the right shit. Uh, you know, we're not louding him as a prophet, but in this one regard, he was absolutely right that you're setting up a situation where if things go north with south with Russia, you're going to have an issue with your energy. Uh, and the writing probably should have been on the wall because we've you know, it's not like Russia hasn't. Uh, decided to push back against the the West and NATO as a whole in the past with the areas like Crimea and, and uh, you know, they, this is a, a continuation of policies ever since the end of the cold war. Mm-hmm. There's another, um, I'm going to play this clip too, as well. Um, I don't, I just remember that this, this was a, uh, this was, a, this was a thing as well. So we'll see what this one's got to say. Oh, uh, how to gonna... get Oh, it's going to hit. Lightsabers are finally a reality. <laughs> lightsabers. This new military flashlight is basically yeah. a lightsaber. Good evening. Basically a lightsaber. We're going to begin tonight in Brussels where President Trump and NATO allies came face to face, but did not see eye to eye. One photo today seemed to sum it up. Mr. Trump looking in one direction, many the other way. The president wants the allies to pay more for defense, saying the U.S. is carrying too much of the burden. This has been going on for decades. For decades and it's disproportionate and not fair to the taxpayers of the united states and we're going to make it fair so that'll be it nato was formed in 1949 to defend europe and north america against soviet aggression mr trump said today that germany in particular has gotten far too close with russia major garrett is in brussels but germany is totally controlled by russia President Trump confirmed Europe's worst pre-summit fears by using the NATO stage to criticize allies, blasting Germany over a natural gas pipeline deal with Russia. It's very sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. German officials deny that the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline will allow Russia to exert undue influence over their country. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tried to keep the peace. Uh, we are stronger together than apart. 
Um, but, but how can you be together when a country is getting its energy from the person you want protection against or from the group that you want protection against? Because we understand that uh, when we stand together also in uh, dealing with Russia, we are stronger. Later, President Trump and German Chancellor Angela Merkel exchanged pleasantries for the cameras during a one-on-one -on -one meeting. But Merkel, who grew up in communist East Germany, told reporters earlier, I've experienced myself how a part of Germany was controlled by the Soviet Union and said her country today made independent policies and independent decisions. The NATO summit is usually a chance for member nations to reaffirm their commitment to an alliance. Yeah, we won't listen to it all. There's still a yeah. couple, another minute, but <laughs> you get the point that we have watched us uh, continually see this situation build up over time creating this crisis i mean this is it wasn't a surprise that russia was ready to push back against nato they've been saying it for a very long time that you're not supposed to be coming into these former soviet areas and nato's continued to march across those lines time and time again so yeah i mean the the, the trumpster is outlandish as he is many times this is one of those areas where he was pretty much right on the head no he got he got that one right and like logan said we're not here to we're not here to praise donald trump um but you got to give someone credit when they when they get it right even aoc got she got like one thing right this year and we gave her a shout out uh when on that because i can't even remember what it was but uh you got to give credit where it's due and <laughs> what they say like yeah the same way that uh we bashed joe biden a lot but when the BBC asked him about the Queen's death, he smirked and said he was Irish, and we laughed our asses off about that. <laughs> Indeed. Still probably the best moment in his presidency, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it was like, definitely the most salient thing he had. He he was ready. I wonder, I wonder it's like I wonder how many like drugs that guy's on on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's like how long he had he been waiting for that one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a moment of clarity. All of the, uh, <laughs> just... the the uppers in his system took a, a side seat and he just went back to his childhood. Said, Fuck that queen. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And so um there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reporting and um whatnot on the actual explosion and we're not going to cover very much of it. Um the details are is that uh, Swedish and Danish seismic networks detected explosions on monday september 26th the first blast occurred at 203 a.m swedish time and a second larger explosion occurred at 704 p.m swedish time uh the danish and german authorities reported a sudden loss of pressure but neither of the pipelines were active since russia had already cut um gas deliveries in them but both were filled with natural natural gas when the pressure um when the drop in pressure occurred um flirt cheap has an excellent Substack post talking about all of those little details. And he also has a really good um, section on how this could have been a naturally occurring explosion. Um, that's about the, That's it, right? At the end of the day, the pipeline blew up because uh, there's a, there's enough, there's enough experts out there that that's what they do. They study seismic activity and these experts can tell the difference between a naturally occurring earthquake and an explosion. I don't know how that's not, I've never even looked at those uh, seismic activity <laughs> reports, but when you have pretty much unanimous consensus, and this isn't like yeah. the 99% of scientists say that climate change or nine out of 10 is or nine out of 10 dentists recommend this to It's not, it's not, it's not that type of consensus. It's like everybody who knows what they're, there's like, yeah, no, that's explosion. There's no, <laughs> 10 out of 10 dentists agree 
with the brand that paid for their vacation home. <laughs> right. I always like the one where it's like the the four dudes beating the guy with the stick. And it's like four out of five people love democracy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. If, if you want to participate, if you would reach over now and grab your tinfoil hat and put it on, we're going to get into the wild <laughs> We need a sound effect. Like, a, I don't know if that needs to be like an X-Files drop or something. But like, yeah. hey, it's time for wild speculation and conspiracy time, everyone. I know. So I, I jotted down like a couple of the, the prime suspects. And we'll go through some kind of pros and cons here. And Matthew and I will tell you guys exactly who should we should be outraged at for destroying the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, so the first one I put down was kind of economic terrorist. I think it's important to, to talk about that one first. Um, we know that in this new world where climate change has become one of the preeminent political talking points, that there are a lot of people out there who kind of see this as dire, that tomorrow it's going to be that movie with The Rock where uh, the entire San Andreas Strait falls off the earth because climate change is happening, uh, that we're all going to be within a new biblical flood if we don't stop the CO2 emissions. Um, so one of the pros of that would be slowing down, you know, potentially, or at least making a statement against, uh, fossil fuels by, um, by think, spewing fossil fuels into the ocean. Right. Uh, that, that would be one of the con arguments is that, uh, you do it's kind of a little bit short-sighted, but Hey, we're talking about people who are willing to destroy infrastructure that provides heat during the winter to millions and millions of people. Yeah. So probably not the most rational actor. So I think it, it wouldn't be completely out of the realm of possibility. Uh, how do you feel about economic terrorism? Um, I think that it is a in or terms, environmental terrorism. I so say. in terms of the possibility, like at a, a one out of, let's say at one out of a hundred, I give it a 0. 0.001 probability just because this, I mean, I would like to know what um, environmental terrorist group has that, uh, you know, that's some pretty complex stuff. It's one thing to chain yourself in front of a large machine that's cutting down trees. It's one thing to even blow up a road because there's a it's a really good documentary. I think it's called When a Tree Falls. And it's all about this radical, um, this radical economic terrorist group that ran around plaguing. I mean, they, they were they're not like they're not the the hippies tying themselves in front of a tree. Like, you can't do this. Now they're going around at night, like blowing up shit. I mean, they're blowing up machinery. They're bulldozing roads. They're, you know, setting off dynamite above to create these huge mudslides that shut down, mm -hmm. you know, and, but that's, that's one thing. It's another thing to have, um, you know, one report I was reading that said hundreds of sticks of dynamite in a sub or any, anything that's capable of, you know, operating at the bottom of the sea. That's, right. I mean, if they have that, then we, we're in for a while. <laughs> and that's exactly where this one falls apart for me, is the technology required to get to the bottom of the ocean to blow up the pipeline. I don't think any of these groups exist with the amount of money needed or the technology needed to actually get to. Now, if it was blown up 100 yards outside of the factory where they begin to pump this gas in on land, then absolutely this would be possible. Yeah, that absolutely. I The only thing, just to play devil's advocate against ourselves, um, there is, you know, the story of where um, Pepsi had like the fourth largest Navy in the world um, because yeah. after the, after <laughs> so for, for, it was big Pepsi for the, for the uninitiated at the, at the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the Russians, they love their Pepsi. And so they wanted to, you know, like the newly formed Russian government wanted to continue with its, uh, 
yearly import of Pepsi products. But now this new country doesn't have like a lot of money. And, you know, it's like, does Pepsi even want it? So they end up selling Pepsi a bunch of like subs and frigates and a couple of battleships. You know, the, a lot, it's, it's actually a pretty decent sized arsenal. So all of a sudden, like Pepsi becomes the fourth largest Navy in the world because Russia's <laughs> just like, we need our Pepsi <laughs> and we have, we have ships and the Pepsi ended up selling most of those away, but you never know. Which like, is crazy. Could you imagine how they could have crushed Coca-Cola if they would have activated that Navy? I was about to None say, of us be drinking that red soda today. I was about to say, dude, just like terror on the high seas. So, so some ship carrying the Coca-Cola. Pepsi pirates. <laughs> some ship the, carrying the skull and crossbone flag gets replaced by the the Pepsi logo on top yeah. of the big silver they man. Hoist, they hoist the colors. It's like some some old timey like uh, naval warfare shit where the the the, the Pep, like the the Coca Cola ship is sailing. It's like hmm, looks like a friendly ship on the horizon. As they get closer, they the false flag and they change. Oh God, it's not a French flag. It's not a French flag. It's Pepsi. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Pepsi dredge of the seas. <laughs> All right, so we're ready to to rule that one out. Everybody, you can you can keep your tinfoil hats on. It's not the the uh, environmental terrorist. We don't think so. We live here in a Western society, so we have all seen the natural villain of this, which of course is Russia. And we've seen that thrown out by several people. So what does Russia have to gain in this in your mind? Well, I mean, the first thing that I think about if I'm trying to steal man, the Russian did it. It is a good pretext to escalate the war. Um, essentially, like if you couple this with the annexation of those eastern and southern territories of Ukraine, you can argue that um, this is a deliberate act of war perpetrated by the West to directly attack Russia, and therefore it is cause for escalation, which they might need because there's an awful lot of uh, videos, what do they call them, blats, um, all of the, the dead Russians. Um, there was, I, did, I saw this, I, read, I was reading this article because I was curious about the the newest offensive and if they had taken, uh, the I think it's the town of Lyman. I want to say that that's it, but there was a, a report from Ukraine, and it said that 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 uh, that most Russians had successfully been redeployed into body bags and into captivity. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, that's, that's <laughs> but uh, Listen, put your dick on the table, I guess." Yeah, right. Um, but I, I that's kind of the pro for me um, that they can. That they I can agree. Now... The, the false flag idea. The mm-hmm. the. Uh, codifying of your nation that if hey if the west is willing to destroy our infrastructure then even if you were a little not behind putin on this you have to understand now there's a greater evil that we're fighting in, in the west um i did read something about them uh they've been having to pay a lot of back pay uh due to contract violation when mm. they shut down the pipelines in the first place uh now something tells me that they're losing a lot more money by not shipping out this gas than they are by those contract negotiations. So I, I kind of think that one's a non-starter. It just doesn't seem to pass the smell test to me uh, at first view. Um, I, I definitely think that the false flag one is one that's out there. Uh, I really don't like the narrative that people were like, oh, they did it to show kind of their force that like, look, we're not going to turn the gas back on. We're done with the pipeline. 
they weren't done with the pipeline. They want to ship this natural gas out. They want to make the money off of it. Like we made the very good case earlier of how they are economically dependent on this at this point in time, and in no small part directly to Germany. So right. they're probably not pumped about that getting taken away. I think that's a big part of the cons to this. Um, I also think it takes that in the same ilk, a huge bargaining chip off of the table for them. Yeah. This is one of the biggest things they had, especially as winter approaching, to say, hey, how about we chill it? You know, especially if the war effort gets to turning south for Russia at any point, uh, you know, if somebody else wants to go in there and help out the Ukraine, whatever the case is, where they're worried about maybe not straight out winning this war, then they want to have this bargaining chip to say, all right, well, we'll stop fighting in Ukraine. You guys can have the ovens back on. How does that sound? We know yeah. how Germany loves their ovens. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I also would like dude, to put no out there. chill. <laughs> <laughs> you have no uh, chill sometimes. <laughs> that one just was a fleeting thought that came into my head. Oh, I couldn't help myself. Man. No, it's like, <laughs> it landed. Holy shit. <laughs> I think it also is fair to say this is going to really kneecap Russia's ability to export their oil, at least in the short term, or their, their natural gas in the short term. Yeah. Um, I, it's going to be bad for their economy. It's going to be bad for Russians. It's, I, I, again, I'm not sure it passes a smell test to me that it was Russia. Yeah, and that's the that's the one thing that really pushes me away from the false flag because it's like I don't. It's not. It's not a cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's much more severe than that. It's like I'm going to cut off my right hand to stop masturbating or something <laughs> like that. It's 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 a lot more severe than just a nose off your face. Like this is a this is a pretty significant. Uh, you know self-inflicted wound if Russia did that because that is their one bargaining chip when you start looking at it that was the one thing that Russia was going to be able to hold over Europe especially I mean because it's already bad it's like things when we did our episode with flirt cheap about how bad the energy situation is in Europe it's gotten worse in those in the last couple of weeks and this pipeline mm -hmm. blowing up does not help it solidifies the fact that it's going to suck to be in Europe this winter. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's going to be, I'm sure the, you know, the, the, the people always find a way, but for the majority of people, this is going to be a very, very hard winter. And I was actually reading about, uh, it's a La Nina year again for the third time in a row, actually, which doesn't happen all that often. And it doesn't, and so blah, 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 um, Southwest is dry, the Canada's really cold, but uh, they don't know the drastic effects of that because it's a Pacific it's a Pacific Ocean occurrence, which then dictates airstreams and yada, yada. But they're also saying that there is a little bit of, they think that there's a little bit of evidence that La Nina years make colder. It's like a little bit colder than average in Europe because of that, mm -hmm. even though that it doesn't have nearly as much of effect um, as it does in America. But if that's even the case, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's already going to, it's already cold in Germany in the wintertime. It's already cold in a lot of these places. It doesn't matter if it's a, regardless La Nina or whatever, if that has any effect, it will be cold in Europe this winter because it is cold <laughs> in the majority of that continent in the winter. And this, that was the one thing that they had to say, you know what guys, lessen your sanctions, stop sending armaments to Ukraine and we'll turn the gas back on, you know, and that's, and that's a really, that's a powerful chip. The way I look, it's not quite the one-to-one, -one, but it's, it's in, it's in a similar category, right? After World War II, America has the monopoly on the, on the nuclear bomb. 
we do the Adams for peace thing and talking about how, Oh, like this is such a terrible thing. And we need to put all of these um, munitions that can make these bombs under international stockpile. And nobody ever has these terrible weapons. And Russia says, yeah, but you have them. So why don't you give yours up first? And <laughs> after the Soviets hang out in Iran a little bit longer than we wanted them to, and Truman threatens to nuke them and they're gone three days later. It's like, that's a really powerful car that you don't want to give up. And it's not the same as an atomic bomb, but it, is in a similar category in terms of the abs of the power that you have to turn that card on because if europe is on the verge of collapse right if, if the if your average person is cold and hungry and being crushed by the you know by energy bills or whatever it might be just the utter discomfort that comes from being cold i hate being cold you know and and to have to live <laughs> To be cold, you know, that that's like there's a lot of domestic pressure that citizens would and I think are going to be exerting on their governments at that point. It's like, dude, who gives a shit about sending arms to Ukraine? I would like my heater turned on. And if you don't, we are going to topple you because Europe doesn't have the same tolerance for that nonsense as Americans do. We're pretty we're pretty docile compared to Europeans. I mean, Europeans will chop monarchies head off for a lot less than being cold. <laughs> well, they understand the concept. It's back to that idea of democracy that when shit hits the fan of democracy, all the politicians kind of point to the people and go, look at all the bad decisions we made. But in those more monarchical systems or those more top-down systems, you know whose head needs to come off. <laughs> right. It's pretty easy to spot that guy. It's actually very easy to identify whose head needs to come <laughs> off. None of this we stuff. I didn't make this. No, there's no we to the guillotine. It's just you, sir. And that may be another good pro for, for Russia and when they're looking at potentially, you know, if we don't know exactly what's in Putin's head and how far he wants to go on this. But if you are one that subscribes to the idea that he wants to continue this offensive war and completely reestablish the former Soviet territories and eventually dominate Europe and the United no States and the entire yeah. world, then maybe it does make sense for him to want to lessen the strength of Europe in the upcoming winter economically. Uh, however, he could also do that by simply shutting down the pipeline, which he had already done. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, it's the, it is, I can understand that argument, but it's taking it one step too far because even now, yeah. if now, if Europe wants to capitulate and they want the gas to start flowing through that North, it's, it can't. Right. And that's the one. And that's where I really, that's where I stop. That's where it doesn't, it doesn't, this one doesn't land for me starts at the end of the day, just because it's like, like you, you could have, you already achieved what you were after right Nord Stream one needed turbines and it needed maintenance that was being pushed in Nord Stream. you know it's like you already had what you needed the gas is already shut off and now you've completely removed your ability to um play that card if in if and when europe was ready to come crawling back to daddy russia right plus hurting your own infrastructure in the long run so that brings us to our next suspect who would benefit from most both Western Europe and Russia not having this pipeline and having this economic strife? We're talking about China. 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 <laughs> so on the pro category, um, I mean, it's already been speculated. Russia is going to do something with its natural gas. So the next natural decision for them to make is to start selling it to Asia as a whole. Uh, we cover this with Flirt Cheap as well. Uh, our entire economy is set up on the idea that you have to trade in U.S. dollars. And we will come usurp your leader if he has the balls to act like he wants to have his own oil dollar. We will take you out and put terrorists in charge in your country <laughs> to make sure that there is so much dismay 
that they don't even have the ability to conceive of an opportunity to create their own fiat currency that isn't based on our dollar. Uh, the competition with that is, of course, the the CCP's version that they want to increase their own uh, uh, influence in their dollar. Um, let's see, I had a quote in here. Uh, Sinopec, which is the, the state-owned oil and gas company uh, in China, resold 3.15 million tons of LNG or liquid natural gas to Europe this year. Uh, this is kind of just to point out how they are positioning themselves in order to uh, become that next exporter importer to, to basically to bolster their economy through the natural gas. Um, Wang Yiwei, Yiwei, a uh, Rinmin University professor specializing in European studies, said Russia was likely to look at, to Asia uh, for buyers of gas. <clears throat> excuse me, it could no longer sell to Europe. Adding that it could help internationalize the Chinese yuan as an alternative to the U.S. dollar. As I stumble through that, you get the point there. That this this is a way to start pushing the yuan into the national stage uh, to, in a certain way, kind of take over what we have become as the U.S. dollar and enforcing the entire world into uh, trading in our system, so that our money is more valuable simply by the fact that everybody uses it. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah, I, I see that one. I mean, the the I I, I do see. I I have a I have a harder time trying to steel man the Chinese um, argument for the pro just because it's a it's a they don't have, they they weren't positioned to just up and turn and take this because that's that's not a small amount of liquid natural gas, but it's also not like nearly enough to to you know it's a drop in the bucket compared to what the energy needs of that continent are. Mm-hmm. And I also, it's also wonder... like percentage wise, I looked at uh, the, the exports of natural gas and they're not even like the top five players in exporting natural gas right now. Yeah. And that's the one, that's the hard part that <clears> I, <throat> I have trouble like still manning that China did this is it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't even add up, especially, especially because they're not even like, they're not offering you know, like uh, like Qatar and other Middle Eastern countries have offered to um, ship liquid natural gas to Germany and Europe, but they want um, the standard like long 20 year lease agreement, right? Like, yeah, sure, we'll give mm-hmm. you liquid natural gas, but you will buy it from us for the next 20 years. And that really starts in Europe has, you know, and Germany has shied away from those offers because if they're they're sticking harder their commitment to renewables but you know like it pushes them so close to their renewable deadline that they have given themselves that they're they're not biting on it um i have a hard time seeing china do that one you know it's like because china has all of its own problems and to Mm -hmm. to blow up and i mean if if you want to take the I guess the only way that I could still man this, if you want to take the 30,000 long-term communist goal of replacing America as the world hegemon, then sure, blowing up a pipeline to make life harder in Europe and destabilizing that entire country, I can see that one. Right. Or maybe start a, a hot conflict between these people on the opposite side of the world of you. That there are three major powers are kind of the way most people look at it, being Russia, the U.S., and China. And if you can get Russia and the U.S. to fight each other in a hot nuclear war, provided it doesn't cause a nuclear Actually, holocaust yeah. for the entire world. Rest the nuclear war. 
Right. Then then hope the idea being maybe we can sit back and both of them will annihilate each other and then we're the only dogs left in the fight. Um, I think the con of that is they do have the technology to do this, I would say, as would Russia, uh, where the ecological terrorist would not so much have the technology to pull this off. But they got to take that technology from China to the Baltics. And I mean, within an hour of these pipelines blowing up, there were reports, oh, we saw Russian ships. We saw Russian ships close to it. You think we would notice if Chinese military vessels moved all the way across? I mean, theoretically, maybe you could take a submarine and just skate the bottom of the ocean below radar level the entire way. Uh, but it seems pretty far-fetched to me to think that China would have made it that far. Yeah, maybe that they disguise themselves as Russians. I mean, that's the that's the hard one. Like China, China is not as it's not as improbable as the eco terrorist, but it's not. Um, I mean, I have yeah, I have a hard time like buying that one. And it wouldn't have a hundred. It's like I give it like a two. Yeah, I would I would put it behind Russia in my mind. I would think even though Russia doesn't seem to have much on the surface, the false flag idea of unifying a country behind a war propaganda times is more compelling to me than than China. Uh, also to consider on the cons would be uh, unifying the entirety of Europe and the strongest powers in the world against you, right. <laughs> which is probably not something they're interested in, I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. So we got three pretty dead suspects so far. Maybe Russia's top of the list uh, at a very small percentage. Um, we have to mention Ukraine next. Obviously, they're the ones uh, they want to completely cut off the fuel cells in, in Russia. They want a complete embargo of their entire economy, basically, uh, because they were told to by America as their proxy state, or I mean, uh, because they're fighting Russia. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> um, again, I think we run into some issues. They do have a lot of technology that's been supplied to them by the US government. So it might be theoretically possible for them to have the technology available to do this. Um, seems like they're a little preoccupied at the moment. There's some other stuff going on that they're having to deal with with all that military equipment. Uh, it sounds like they only get a small, uh, maybe half of that equipment anyway that actually ends up in their country by all the reports. A lot of that equipment is uh, going missing into the international arms game and Man, being sold around the world. want my hands on some of that. <laughs> I thought you were going to have the sad message. It was one of envy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I want my hands on some of that stuff, dude. <laughs> if if Ukrainians, if it's if it's gonna if it's good enough to defend, you know, Ukrainians from Russians, then it should be good enough to defend me from whoever I might need to. You know, it's like if I need to shoot down a helicopter, then it's nice to have nice to have Saint Javelin in your backhand. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, those weapons we've been supplied have been doing a really good job of uh, allowing Ukrainian farmers to haul off Russian tanks. It seems like, dude. I know. See a lot of those videos, <laughs> and it, but yeah, they tell me I can't have an AR-15. <laughs> another, another conversation for another day. <laughs> um, now, I do think that this takes a major bargaining chip again off the table for Ukraine. Uh, it really lessens the opportunity there is for this war to come to a peaceful end anytime soon. Uh, like we said, it would have been really nice if Russia and, and Europe as a whole kind of came to an agreement that, yes, we need to stop this hot war. It's time to turn the gas on. That's gone now. So yeah. I, I do think that's a major con. Um, again, we come back to that argument, though, that it's a con for the average Ukrainian. Is it a con for the people who have been put in place to run the country of Ukraine? Or do they have different agendas altogether? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I could see... I mean that's a that's a that's a bold move 
that I'm going to sabotage some people that I, I'm going to sabotage the countries that have been giving me billions of dollars in in military assistance aid. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because you can tell if I, I I peruse quite a few of those those videos. It's kind of I don't know why. This is just kind of what I do at night. Um, and you can tell the difference between the Ukrainian army at the start of the war versus now. And there is a clear influx of Western <laughs> military technology and capabilities in there. And those Ukrainian soldiers look good. You know, there's no there's no hand me downs anymore. This is like brand new, brand new stuff out of the box looking mighty fly and to mm-hmm. sabotage your and to and it's like that's a it's a bold move. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but to say thank you for all the billions of dollars of aid. But I'm going to blow up this pipeline just to make sure <laughs> that you don't back out of this. That's right. a, and, and that would be the argument for it, I think, is that especially if you get away with it without being linked to you if you could blow this pipeline up get out of there and there's no way they could link it back to ukraine you could argue that well this may be a way to shoehorn the rest of nato in the west into having no option but to go in there and try to crush russia yeah and i wonder if this has anything to do because i know that ukraine was trying to put together like an emergency application into nato which i think is the absolute worst fucking idea yeah, that's a that's, that's terrible a, basically signing a treaty to start world war three it is, that is that's exactly what that is and um i'm not down with that at all they can go fuck themselves if that's what it's going to come down to because mm-hmm. i'm i don't I, I, I my heart goes out for the ukrainian people just like it does for the russian people right because it's shitty that your governments are doing that but uh, don't uh, don't come mess up. Uh, like I, I like my I like my my life in my little mountain town. You know, right. I don't need yeah, I don't life's, need that life's going to life. get significantly worse, regardless of if you're in NATO or not, when atoms start getting split over your capital cities. It's not good. It's not good for anybody. Um, yeah. And I guess that uh, you, you you said the con like it takes like the major bargaining chip out of the table. I wonder if that's almost a pro at the same time but because ukraine's have been very hard-nosed about peace you know and what's interesting is that there's been you know like what i'm trying to think of his name he's the he's the chief communications officer for the joint chief of staff oh i can't think of his name anyways he was on dan abrams one night and he was t- and dan was pressing him about you know like it's like at what point does the united states like, so, you know, do we step in and say, like, you, you know, like, you probably need to make a peace treaty. We're going to cut off aid. And he says that Ukraine gets to determine the terms of victory for Ukraine right now, to which I'm like, oh, cool. So they just have like this blank check and we're just going to keep writing massive checks to Ukraine. And they they have not um, budged an inch like their Ukraine's war goals is complete you know, recapturing of all annexed territory, including Crimea. Um, so it's just, it's just one of the, did you see Elon Musk proposal for peace in Ukraine? No. Oh yeah. No, this guy's, this guy's, I don't know. It's like, sometimes I like Elon Musk. Sometimes I think he's just a complete autistic buffoon. And um, let me see, let me see if I can find it. Elon Musk peace agreement he tweeted i do want to point out actually looking that up i did want to mention as well um there was a period in time where i don't think they were quite as hard-nosed about peace at the beginning of this conflict uh i'm going to go ahead and link it now as i'm looking up this article for it um but but i did remember a story as you were saying that there was peace talk at the beginning of this conflict uh they were pretty dang close i mean they had an agreement 
that Russia had already, I, I don't know if they necessarily signed it, but they had agreed to on the Russian side and we're giving it to the Ukrainians. And Boris Johnson from the UK flew in on behalf of the NATO right. and the US and killed that deal. So there was an opportunity to avoid this and it was taken away by Early. the good old US empire and their friends at NATO. Yep. And now Boris Johnson's not even part of the government. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's said in there for anybody that's interested. So he posted a yes or no survey on his Twitter feed. And it's actually it's interesting because the Ukrainian diplomat told him to fuck off um, <laughs> <laughs> about this. And uh, let me see if I can find it there. Here it is. Ukraine, Russian peace. Redo elections of annexed regions under U.S. supervision. Russia leaves if it is the will of the people. Crimea, formerly part of Russia, as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. And it's like, okay, cool. Now you're just a, now you're just like a Russian apologist. Um, <laughs> but then water supply to Crimea assured, and Ukraine remains neutral. Yes or no. So there was two two million seven hundred uh sorry, two two million seven hundred and forty-eight thousand three hundred and thirty-eight votes. Fifty-nine percent said no. Hmm. I'm almost surprised that fifty-nine percent said no. That doesn't sound horrific. <clears throat> I'm sure that if I went through and actually picked it apart, I would find some issues with that. But a, a knee-jerk reaction to that poll. That doesn't sound like the most unreasonable way to come to peace. See, I I kind of do think it's a little unreasonable. Um, just because just because it's like one, you're Elon Musk, right? You don't get a say about <laughs> it's like I get it that you 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 make cars and robots and launch rockets into space and you buy Twitter and you know you do you do you do Elon Musk things, but to just uh, you know, it's like I think that is a little unreasonable to just be like, okay, cool, like you're gonna just give away Crimea. You know, that's the part where I think it is unreasonable. Like, okay, we're just gonna I was gonna say it. the part where it's uh Obviously, in a poll in the U.S., people probably agree with it. But I bet if you ask Russia if it's okay for the U.S. to run the voting system that decides if anybody's going to rejoin Russia or not, they'd be like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, no (laughs) doubt. And that's and that's like I don't I mean, that's the I understand that historically, like Crimea was always part of Russia. um, Mm -hmm. But it also, you know, like when Ukraine became a sovereign territory and its own nation, it yeah. was part of Mexico City used to be Tenochtitlan. We're not giving back the tacos. <laughs> right. It's almost and there's it's almost the same arguments, right? Where it's like, oh, let's just give back Texas and New Mexico because it was once a part, you know, part of. Right. Where do you stop of- drawing those lines? Because if we, we can go back to a period of time when none of the countries that are currently in existence existed. So, you know, how far back do you keep rolling that back? Are we going to bring Troy back? You know, where <laughs> where's the line at some yeah, point? For sure. No, it's uh, that's that's neither here nor there. But uh, that's good old diplomat Musk trying to, <laughs> you know, it's like, if anything, dude, like send the ambassador Rodman, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you we we joke at the, the Rodman, but I don't know that he's been the worst for international policy at least not, out there no, i say that putting up peace talks with crazy people no I, I mean i'm not i don't say that uh all tongue-in-cheek it's like if we're gonna if we're gonna be having celebrity diplomats in there it's like send in ambassador rodman at least like he was interesting to watch I get that play basketball. i would say that i don't think a lot of basketball players are excited to go to russia right now no 
<laughs> womp womp. Well, we made it through our our list of suspects, and we didn't really feel that strongly about any of them. That was weird. I guess it. We just don't. Oh, there is one more uh, suspect on the list. I guess um, we got to talk about the USA. Oh, you mean no? No, no, no. Wait, you're, you would you would say that we we would do something like that? No, Matthew, I'm Logan not make here you... to say that we would do something like that. I'm just here to say that we're trying to be an unbiased podcast and turn over every stone. So we should take a short, uh, unbiased look at America's uh, pros right. and cons. When it uh, comes fair to fair enough. Ma- make your make your argument. Uh, well, I, I brought this up the other day and somebody told me, uh, well, America can't actually export natural gases to Europe because we don't have the technology to reduce it to a liquid. Uh to which at this point I'd already been reading on this. And I said, actually, uh, that technology is kind of new and is trending big time. Uh, I also think it's really interesting. I, I tried really hard to look it up. I couldn't find where I saved the damn thing. Uh, but one of those TikTok guys that follows U.S. senators stock exchanges uh-huh. uh, and shows shows the insider trading and also encourages people to buy the same stocks they do because uh, Mirac- nobody's better at predicting stocks than uh, Congress. The Nancy senators. Pelosi index, dude. That's, the, that's right. That's right. The only thing in my portfolio doing okay. Every dude, like <laughs> everything else, is just tanking. But you know, it's like a couple of stocks that Pelosi picked. It's like that's like Pelosi's my Pelosi's recession my, proof. Somehow. Yeah, dude, right? I know. Fancy that. <laughs> well, I wonder if any of those stocks might have been LNG or liquefied natural gas stocks because that's the technology they use now they compress it down uh extremely cold and put it in these tankers on ships that they can ship it overseas uh and like i was saying this uh, gentleman on tiktok was expressing that a lot of u.s senators and congressmen have been investing right before Nord Stream uh, mysteriously blew up in lngs very strange coincidence it is strange i mean but you know what man it's or maybe also... not so strange i mean we just covered the prophetic uh views of our congress people when it comes to trading stocks you know but it's also I, it's probably it's dude you no know, you know the world is a weird place of coincidences you know it is it is weird mm-hmm. that all of those congressmen sold off their stocks right before the pandemic it, it, it is weird that you know nancy pelosi <laughs> bought a lot of invita right before her trip to you know it's like those like the world is filled with coincidences bro it's not that's you know true. that's true you know another one of those coincidences i i think is quite interesting is that uh in 2022 uh this year the united states became the largest exporter of lng huh that is that yeah, is so an, that is not coincidence. nobody nobody who isn't doing it through a pipeline that's shipping out more natural gas in the united states quite quite interesting yeah no that is i will give you that that isn't a another coincidence <laughs> I think even on top of that, another coincidence would be that there's also now a, a big market for natural gas that just opened up after we just developed the technology to do so and had all of our Congress people invest in said technologies. Uh, now it seems like there's a really good market that opened up. It's just coincidence after coincidence. Fortune favors the bold, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do also, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, uh, like we said already once in this episode, this feels like a very CIA thing to do. Economic warfare is not foreign to our country at all. No, it's not. And it's not even, and this isn't even like, this is kind of textbook Cold War stuff because that's what we do. And that's the one thing of Americans, your average American, we really do try to gloss over, right? The NPCs try to forget or don't know that this is what we, this is what we do as Americans with the CIA and all of these three, these three letter shadow organizations that run around the globe unchecked. It's 
we we blow pipelines, we stage coups, we assassinate leaders, um, sometimes even our own. Uh, we do a lot of really shady things <laughs> in the name of national security. And this is the one thing like this is the this is what still man's this argument for me the most is that one, it's very well within the realm of possibility. This is it's actually right. what we do. You know, this yeah. is <laughs> we're talking about technological technological capability. Check. We're probably number one in that category. Yep. Uh, we have motives. Yep, we mm-hmm. have motives. And I think the big one is one, there's also the financial, but there's the two, there's that geopolitical push, right? Like NATO is the proxy of the United States. And better not just better not to have Germany, you know, it's like it's the it's the kid with the cookie. Just take the cookie out of the room. I don't even need to tempt you because <laughs> you might have the cookie and then I have to punish you. And I don't want to punish you because I'm a loving parent. So I'm just going to take the cookie out of the room. It's for everyone's it's in everyone's best interest that there's no cookie for you to reach to. And I think yeah. that's the big one for me. It's like, do you just removed Europe's capability to go crawling back to Russia and to break ranks mm-hmm. on these sanctions and support of Ukraine? They got nothing now. Yep, we're locked in. Now, I had somebody that said to me, why would we do this, though? Europe is our allies. NATO are our allies. (laughs) (laughs) Why would we do anything (laughs) to our allies? (laughs) So I would like to point out, uh, first of all, it's never stopped us in treaties in the past. Uh, We did a really good job of carving out a nice little empire after World War II when everybody else was in shambles. Uh, It worked out pretty good. A lot of people even point to that as, the moment that US, the United States became the world power is right after World War II. When we were able to go in there, everybody was war-torn and broken down, and we got to make sure that we wrote all the treaties, and you go, you sign this one, you sign this one, you sign this one. And the end result of that is, you know, some countries that were on our side, sure, they got some some money kicked back from those other countries that were not on our side, got to rebuild some infrastructure that got destroyed, all that good stuff. But ultimately, we became the biggest dick at the table. We had all the chips on our side. Uh, I think it's also worth mentioning here that ever since then, what do we complain about on this podcast? Why are we sending all of this money to these countries that don't pay for their own military budgets? You heard Trump say that same thing. It's time to stop. Why are we sending all these money to these guys? Well, the establishment didn't like Trump that much. Part of the reason they probably didn't like him that much is because with this uh, handshake nod deal where you get all this military money from the United States, it also comes with a bit of expectation that you are now a proxy of the great American empire and you're going to do what I say we're going to do. You will you will maintain rank. That's right. That's right. And what is this U.S. oil dollar we always talk about other than consolidating everybody into the same U.S. economy? We're kind of in a roundabout way. We're not openly saying you have been annexed into the United States. We're not saying that you're a pro, you are a proxy openly of the United States. That's we are expensive. saying your entire defense budget comes from the United States. And we might pull that shit out from under you. Mm-hmm. No, that's I mean, that's the. As much as I, I, I don't know, like I try so hard to, and I, we have given these others one serious thoughts, you know, we, we don't, I know that we've joked, but I have a very hard time seeing anyone but us doing this at the end of the day. Cause it just makes, it? it just makes so much sense. Like all of the, of course, of course, we just figured out how to transport liquid natural gas. <laughs> of course, senators and congressmen just invested heavily into the infrastructure and the companies to do this. Of course, all, you know, of course. And you know, it's actually and fascinating. It's by the CIA playbook, man. It is. And there's, let me see if I, I'll find this real fast. Um, 
<laughs> While you're looking it up, I got a little quote here uh, from Douglas McGregor, which if you guys don't remember Douglas McGregor, he was the one that all the good liberty people were saying should have been in charge of uh, the military under Trump. Trump met with him, talked with him, uh, and then decided to go with Bolton to run the military. And of course, we stayed in all of those countries throughout his entire presidency, even though he talked about bringing all those people back. Uh, he did put Douglas McGregor in charge for like the last three months of his presidency when there was zero time to actually do any reasonable, measurable change that would have done it. Uh, but McGregor is one of these guys I really like. He, he's a, got a good head on his shoulder. He's anti-war, uh, but he's anti-war with a lifetime of military service. He's a bad dude. He's not some soft guy who just doesn't want to go to war because he can't imagine the horrors of it. He's one who's seen the horrors of war and says that's why we don't need to do this stuff. Um, so when he was participating on an episode of the Judging Freedom podcast with host Andre Napolitino, uh, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense advisor, Douglas McGregor, stated that the U.S. and the U.K. could be the countries behind the recent pipeline explosion. McGregor has categorically stated that Russians did not participate in such an operation, that an eventual German self-sabotage plan also sounds very unlikely. For him, the U.S. and the U.K. are the countries that are not only more interested in this type of attitude, but also have the greatest technological and operational capacity to conduct this type of work. Now, with a grain of salt, I did pull this uh, from Russian News Now. So I will openly say that. But this is something that was said on a podcast in America, uh, just simply highlighted by this new source. <laughs> but again, this is a guy who I kind of trust in McGregor, who I think is pretty honest and, and pretty anti-war and pretty ousted by the establishment. Uh, there's a reason he is the uh, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, um, because he got that post. And as soon as the Biden administration came in, they kicked him out for another war hawk. Yep. Yeah, <clears throat> there's there's so much about that. It's like it just starts to make like, none of it really makes sense, except when you start looking at it through the lens of the United States and what we have. We have the most to gain from it is because yeah, because that's it. Like there is still this as the globe shifts because 2022 is a radically different time than 1945 or 1980 or 1990 or even 2001 right like the world is a, it's an ever shifting geopolitical globe and if you always if you look at geopolitics through the lens of the, the nation state will always vie to maintain and expand its power right this is that states that statesmanship 101 right there's a lot of like old school like austrian uh, metternich um uh, 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 what's the right word? Uh, I don't know, like a thinking, a uh, paradigm. I don't, I don't know, but there's like some old school, like statesmanship that comes from this and geopolitics has not changed in that regard. And I know that like the world has changed an awful lot, but the same real politic that Bismarck talks about in the 19, in like the late 1890s is still the same game that we play in 2022 and when you look at all of these you know key bono right that's kind of the big that's the big one who benefits america benefits we ben we benefit we been <laughs> america benefits it's perfect it's like, like not only have we figured out how to convert you know now we can ship liquid natural gas which is expensive and it's going to cost europe an arm and a leg to buy this and it's also going to cost them an arm and a leg to get these ports to um you know take 
and received this, you know, there's a lot of money and I'm sure that there'll be a little bit of American companies involved in some of the building of those infrastructures <laughs> to receive it. Not, you know, like not only is there a huge financial incentive, but there's also a geopolitical incentive. And I know that you and I and people that love freedom would love a world where we don't have to talk about geopolitics, but the world still operates on this very simple idea of nation states vying for power control and influence over other nation states and perfect you know and it's also you just it's it's squeezing the nuts just a little europe just to remember who big daddy is remember who did mm -hmm. remember who helped you beat back remember who beat you know it's like i know that we were kind of you know it's like on, on opposing sides of world war ii but remember who helped you rebuild your country berliners remember who flew in the Marshall Plan and did the Berlin airlift. Remember who daddy, you remember who your daddy has been this entire time. Sorry, I'm about to have my sneeze now of the episode. No, it, it's uh, all good. I was, <laughs> I was watching you move. I was just like, what the hell? I was, I was trying to get under the lamp so I could force a sneeze, but it didn't work oh, out. Okay, uh, gotcha. I was like, dude, it's like, you look like you're about to have a seizure over there. <laughs> it feels similar sometimes. <laughs> um, no, but you're exactly right. Uh, and hey, let's give, we're not straw manning this. What are the cons? Uh, nuclear fallout with Russia. That's, you know, it's a big one in my book. Doesn't seem to be a big one in our, geopolitical actions our, our countrymen don't seem to care that much about it because they seem to be exacerbating this war by sending shit tons of money and weaponry to ukraine yeah um there's also the aspect of if this does get proven to be america then we risk losing a lot of our allies and our our homogeny in the west in nato in in europe as a whole yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, and that is the con, right? Like, let's not just we, we won't just still man this argument. We will try to straw man it as well. The the con is that this is an awfully bold move. Same as yes, to, to the same as you. But it is right? for this anyone. Is, this is. Yeah, you're right. It is. It is a huge gamble. And when you look at what you gain versus what you stand to lose, it does start to seem like this is an awfully big reach because if it is proven to be true, then the entire Western alliance of NATO, even though that's like NATO probably should just dissolve, it would probably it would be for the better. I think it's, it's, as a self-interested person who loves freedom and wants nothing to do with the, the, the happenings of the nation state, the disillusion of NATO is in my interest. The world, mm -hmm. I think the world's a better place without NATO because I would like to just hang out in the mountains and bike and ski and do and run my businesses and hang out because that's what I'm not do. worried about nuclear fallout. I would love to do that. I would love to do that. So it's, you know, <laughs> and the, it's such a it's such a huge reach because of the consequences of it right it i, I it's it's irreparable it's it's irreparable damage i think that if it comes out that america did it because i don't know how unless and but now i'm just like working through this unless it's just like these unless germany and france and europe is in just such dire straits and they have no that they have no choice but to just cozy up to the people that blew up their pipeline and it made mm -hmm. the winter a lot harder because what is your alternative? Do you get in, like, do you make a peace deal with Russia? Do you get in bed with China? You know, what are the alternatives? And so it's like, at that point, now I kind of just like came around to the steel man. It's like, what are you going to do, Europe? Yeah. Like, yeah. What you, like, what That's are you what I'm do? afraid of too. I mean, they're all right. Your entire defense budget is depending on us. Your economies in some small part are dependent on us. 
your your infrastructure is coming in no small part from your ability to not spend on your military so that you can build up those kind of things. Uh, And your entire political system is set up with ours hand in hand. I mean, NATO is kind of America. It's American friends. One entity. Yeah. We're, we're here pushing this agenda uh, and they're following through with it. It's not like we're two separate entities. We we are very much linked at the hip. Yeah. It's, it is, and it's so in the attempt to try to straw man it, I just still manned it to the to the nth degree where it's like, yeah, well, like what are they like? Actually, what are they going to do? Because I was thinking, oh, like it's going to be so bad. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, so what? I kissed your girl. What are you going to do? You know, it's like, what are you going to do about it? Alpha's doing alpha shit, bro. It is, and it has it does have like a little bit of that that tone to it. Like, so what? Mm-hmm. So what? I did it. You know, it's like, what do you, what are you gonna do? Oh, you're gonna kick us out of? Oh, you're not gonna give us our our military bases? Fine, we're gonna pull back. We're gonna dissolve NATO, and we're gonna pull back all of American troops in this area. Cool. Good luck. Good luck, Europe. Your your defense has been subsidized by America for the last eighty years. Good luck mm-hmm. balancing your budgets now. You guys are already yeah. in serious economic trouble. Good luck trying to find that. Good now. Now now Europe has the the dilemma butter or bread guns or butter you know it's that's it, it I, god do you think we there's blew, a we did it we did it <laughs> do you do you think that they ever are able to prove that our cia was responsible for this attack or that there's the outside chance that it was somebody else do you how how did they find out when they're investigating this how do they even begin to decide who blew up something at the bottom of the ocean I don't know, because when you start looking at, I mean, you can whittle it down to nation states that have the capabilities to do that, which is several, right? I'm, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of countries that have submarines, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't think that it's all that outrageous. Yeah, pretty that, much all of the developed world makes yeah, that qualification. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, we also have the unmanned um, submersible technology too. Like, like at this point, you don't even need a submarine to do yeah. this type of stuff. Like you can just send it, you can send an underwater drone for lack of a better term. Right. And, and any of those, this. any of those drones that have camera footage of crabs getting sucked into those pipeline leaks, you, you could just use any of those. Yeah. It's not, I mean, and, and that's the thing too, when you start looking, when you look at it from that, there's also a huge amount of companies that have that type of technology, right? Like think of the companies that build and maintain these pipelines. Think of oil drilling companies, right? Like we're talking about depths that are deeper than we're to- than than the Baltic Sea floorboard. Like there's an mm-hmm. awful, you know, there's probably no less than 70 entities in the world that could have gotten right up to that pipeline with an unmanned drone. So yeah. Like and but then the, a lot that's of also like a lot best... of those companies may also have uh, new technologies in LNG where they're wanting to ship it via boat and maybe maybe they are um and that's the thing it's like I don't know how you ever go about proving it um it's I don't I, I don't, that I don't know one. I mean I think that that's one of those things that in fifty years as things become declassified we just get to accept as yeah that happened. Yeah, America blew up the pipeline. America blew up <laughs> yeah. Nord Stream too. That's that's <laughs> probably how that it, that ends actually. Yeah, as our grandchildren get to see a CIA document that's redacted and only seventy five percent of it's blacked out, and they're like, "Yeah, we did. We yeah, we pipeline. did it right." Because when we look at <laughs> when we look at all the other coups, because 
this is in line with all of the other major geopolitical it just gets to be it just gets to be something like ruby ridge Nord stream is going to be something that conspiracy theorists yell at people that go what are you talking about yeah and but i don't i think it even becomes deeper than that i think it i think it becomes more mainstream than just these you know like a bunch of conspiracy theorists because who like nobody looks at the whole iranian revolution and says like yeah like like no one looks at that and says no of course, of course, the British National Oil Company in Iran didn't cahoot with the United States CIA to to depose the newly elected uh, president of Iran. Like nobody looks at that and says that didn't happen. We all say, yeah, that's what we did. Yeah, it and, definitely happened. And when you start looking at all of the the coups in South America, water on the end of the bridge. When there's when the people are dead, you can't pay reparations to anybody. So it's true. You know, it's what it is at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's and I think I think that that's where we're eventually going to come to. We're we're just going to shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, we yeah. did it. And good thing we did. Now that the entire world is NATO, isn't everything better now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have this global economy that that sucks everybody or global military homogeny that makes everybody follow the exact same rules and make sure you're all cookie cutters and there's no individual cultures anymore. I know. It's it's so true. Um and this is I wanted to play this clip. Um I don't know if this is exactly what I was looking for, but I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> um this is Joe Biden talking about in February actually before they invaded um uh, before Russia invaded Ukraine. And let's see if this is it. Russia you invades, Putin, uh, you would have to be a su- tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. But, do, but how will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Yeah. That's, I mean, I mean that, uh, that feels a little bit like, oh, and I have been seeing that clip thrown out everywhere. And I don't, uh, I don't think that that's a hundred percent condemnation that we're responsible for it. Uh, but it certainly doesn't help the case. No, it doesn't help, you know, and that's the thing too. When you start, when you start stacking up all of the, you know, it's like, it's almost like a, it's almost like a murder trial, you know, it's like, who, who are the suspects? And this isn't even like, we haven't even gotten to trial yet. This is, this is us as police or detectives trying to like build a case against certain suspects. We're now starting to get to a lot of, you know, this is like, like maybe you're not, we haven't put out. An Somebody's coming warrant. in for questioning first. Yeah. Like an arrest warrant isn't out, but that letter of like, you are now a person of interest of this investigation. <laughs> you're not allowed to leave the country. We've anymore. definitely received like America has definitely received the person of interest. If this is like, if this is a murder investigation, it's like you're not, we're not placing you under arrest, but uh, just so you know, like you are a suspect. You're actually the you're prime suspect of this cops. murder. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna get to talk to some police officers so where are you at what's your if you're gonna slap a percentage on it i'm gonna say it is i'm gonna say i'm gonna give it a 72 percent chance uh, i thought you were gonna go higher i was thinking about 80 percent. i think about 80 percent chance this is us i think so too i think that my 72 percent chance um 
because when we look at the other percentage chances, I give Russia maybe like a maybe like a five. I think the yeah. UK. I think the UK makes up the bulk of that because I think like echo terrorist, eh, whatever. Ukraine maybe a one percent chance. China one percent <laughs> chance. I'll give Russia an eight percent chance. So UK gets the remaining. Um, I don't know, like twelve or eighteen Which, or whatever the math has. To up. be fair. That could pretty easily be made a case that that's just the U.S. as well. I mean, these are these are our proxies, man. They they're doing our bidding, and they they uh, almost a hundred percent. The U.K. being number one on that list, they do what America wants them to do. Yeah, for sure. And that's and that's uh they yeah they fell in line. The Suez Canal crisis. I won't even get you know won't detour too deeply into that because like the France and France and. Britain cahooted with Israel and it's like, Hey, we should just probably like take over the Suez canal. And but and <laughs> while we're at it, Egypt, and this is like 50, I want to say this 51 <laughs> or 52. And then the United States and Soviet union stepped in. And that's when essentially that's when great Britain and uh, uh, France got the memo. The United States is in charge and you yeah. will do what we want. Because after we stepped in, it was like three days later, like all of the troops are out. And so, you know, it's like, it ended very quickly after the United States said, nah, you don't get to do this without our explicit yeah. consent. Blew that dog whistle. Get back to your kennel, boys. <laughs> Dude, the animals are barking too loud. Put them back in the cage. Get out of here. Oh, well, that was fun. Everybody, you can you can now remove your tinfoil hat and let the FBI start tapping back in with their mind reading telepathic technologies. Yeah. No, I I I think it's been it's it it is what it is, you know, and one of these days I'm gonna run out of those. Um but, <laughs> <laughs> but for right now, this this is geopolitics. This is the way that the world still functions, and this is why Logan and I advocate so hard for freedom. Because I'm not even like an anarcho com or a capitalist or an it's like an anarchist man. I don't know. I don't know what's called I like I love right. freedom. That's all yeah. I'm I throw with- I throw anarchist out there a lot. Mostly because it gets a reaction out of people, I think. Right. I really like to start conversations <laughs> with people that way. Um, I definitely still have some minarchist leanings. I'm not sure that anarchy is necessarily 100% of the way to go. It is the way I tend to lean. I think that from everything I've read and everything I've I've researched, that it, it does seem like morally and economically the best way for us to move forward as a society, especially now that we have this interconnectedness of the internet and the ability to communicate with each other, camera phones and the ability to capture these government agents pulling off these sketchy things. Um, the more interconnected we become, I think the more sophisticated we are as a society, the more apt we are to be able to bring in an anarcho-capitalist type of society that would function. Uh, Hopefully. However, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. But, Hopefully. but, but at the same time, there's an awful lot of legwork to be done and just breaking the status narrative of all of this stuff is where the work actually has to start. So that's why Logan and I are here. Logan got anything else before I take us out? I think that's about it. And we're going to continue to push, uh, you know, PHFP as well as uh, First World Comics, guys. Um, check them both out. Get out there. Buy some merch from PHFP. It's, it's a great cause. Uh, it goes to helping victims. It's You're a piece of garbage if you're not buying from them is what I'm getting at. Uh, <laughs> and First World Comic, guys, this is exactly the, the, uh, the creation of what this network, No Kings Network, has been. Uh, we're trying to get out there and influence the culture. Uh, and this is one of those areas that we don't have a, a – our fingers in yet 
Um, I'd love if those guys want to be part of No Kings Network in the future, but I know they got their own thing going on and we've just started our relationship. Uh, so we're going to push somebody that we think is a good freedom fighting uh, human being out there that's trying to influence the culture. Uh, and we're looking for more people to bring into this network that have these ideas that have more things they want to push uh, in order to kind of continue to push the culture of freedom and liberty and, and uh, not being under the boot of the oppressive state. Amen to that. Well, if you like the podcast, please give us five stars. Logan and I are still actively trying to retire from our day jobs, even <laughs> though that like I I continue to create more day jobs for myself. And I don't know why. I guess I'm just a glutton for punishment. And I don't know. I have some deep reflecting of how I hate myself on a deep, deep level um, that I have to deal with. That's not on you guys. That's on me. I definitely, <laughs> definitely reflect a lot on how much I hate you as well. That's no, that's, that's fine, man. It's like, I can, you, your hatred of me will never, you can't say the things I say to myself in the mirror won't even ever, you could never even come close, my friend. So just keep on, keep on hating, bro. But I got you beat. <laughs> I got you just beat there. <laughs> 10 minutes every morning, staring in the, mi- the mirror, just throwing out homophobic slurs at yourself. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. That's that's definitely that. That only takes up about a couple of minutes. My issues are much deep, much deeper than that, my friend. Uh, Once you much, wiped away the tears, the morning's ready to start. Much deeper, you know. Have a good cry, say some nasty things to yourself. The exact the opposite of that, that little girl that like gets in the mirror and goes, "You're awesome. I love you. You're great." Just berate yourself for an hour to begin every day. Piece of shit, you don't make enough money. I doubt your girlfriend's even sexually satisfied. <laughs> dude how dare you have a camera in my bathroom (laughs) how dare you expose that of me shame anyways guys if you like what we're doing please give us five stars give us a review that does go an awful long way in the algorithm and we definitely appreciate it follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at against the mob like logan said the no kings network that's what we're here doing we're trying to push and win the culture because that is where the battle is won for the masses sometimes all of these all of our intellectual arguments don't land on the the shoulders of the npcs but maybe if they see a comic or see a t-shirt that gets their attention then perhaps we can start to crack open that hard shell of a human being that may or may not actually have a soul but we'll see it's not my it's not my place to comment on whether npcs are people or not um that's 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 a discussion for another day um i definitely we appreciate you guys listening week in and week out we love you thank you very much uh Sometimes we forget why we do this, but then we'll have somebody reach out and say that they appreciate us and it regalvanizes us um, to actually get in week in and week out, even though that we make absolutely no money. And it is a it is a huge commitment on our part, but we love it and we're happy to be in the trenches with you guys. So thank you for listening to us because without you guys, we wouldn't have anything. We wouldn't. Yeah, it's like. You guys are the reason we do this. So thank you very much. We love you. And with all that being said, we fight against that mob with people over politics and NPCs probably don't have. Yes, sir. 